Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Give ear to the word of God. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's uh, let's pray once again and ask God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your holy word, and we ask once again that you would uh, give me grace by your spirit to preach your word faithfully and clearly, and that you'd give us all understanding into it. Uh, Give us by your spirit eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, when I was getting ready to to prepare for this uh, particular sermon, we just started going through on the first Sundays of the month for a little while. The Ten Commandments, we started that last uh, month. I believe it was on January 1st, on New Year's Day. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're very familiar with a passage like the Ten Commandments, we, many of us, I think, are um, in, in a foolish uh, frame of mind. I, I kind of told myself, well, this will be simple. This will be easy to do. We could probably cover every base in one sermon and it didn't take long uh, to start working on, on the sermon for this morning to be reminded that that's not the case. Um, I remember years ago, I always say that Thomas Watson is my favorite Puritan, and my introduction to him was a little, I guess you call it a trilogy. He has little, these little books, one on the Apostles' Creed, one on the Ten Commandments, one on the Lord's Prayer. And I remember when I first looked at the one on the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, I, I thought to myself, wow. It's a, you know, back then a 250-page book seemed immense to me. Like I I thought, oh, I'll never finish that. But I remember thinking, what on earth could he possibly say about the Ten Commandments, which fit on a fifth, a fourth of a page maybe? You know, what could he possibly have to say about the Ten Commandments that could take him 250 pages to do it? Uh, And then the more I studied over the years, the more I realized that he probably kept it short. There's actually a lot, if if we think about it, you know, if you actually spend the time, like most of the Puritans did, of thinking about the implications of God's word and the applications, the many applications of it, uh, I think you can see there's there's a lot to be gleaned from it. Um, and I, I hope to at least scratch the surface this morning. We can't cover every base, obviously. We could spend, maybe we should spend a number of Sundays on the second commandment just to try to get uh, through more of what these applications and implications are. Um, so our study this morning brings us to the second commandment, uh, and the simplest way to summarize this commandment is to say that in it, God forbids idolatry. It is uh, The first commandment is no other gods before me. The second commandment is forbidding idolatry, and that sounds easy, but what is idolatry? Do we ever give idolatry a second thought? If you read your Old Testament, you can't help but be faced with that particular sin and the many, uh, many times that the, the people of Israel violated that commandment and broke that, uh, transgressed that commandment. But uh, the most literal sense of this, of this prohibition in the second commandment is to use images in worship. 
It, it speaks of that explicitly, carved images and other images uh, as well. Uh, God forbids us from making images and bowing down to them or serving them. But it also includes such things as worshiping God in any way that he himself has not ordained in Scripture. The old Puritan writer Thomas Watson, whom I just mentioned, he writes this in kind of summarizing what this commandment means. He says, in the first commandment, worshiping a false god is forbidden. In this, the second, the worshiping of the true God in a false manner is forbidden. So you see how they're related, how they go together. Uh, uh, Robert L. Dabney uh, puts it this way, as the first commandment fixes the object of worship, that is God, so the second commandment fixes or you know, sets for us the mode of religious worship. He's saying basically the same thing that Watson said. Uh, that is a helpful way, I think, for us to understand the relationship between the first and second commandments. The first commandment forbids the worship of false gods. The second commandment forbids the worship even of the one true God in a false way. And so they go very closely uh, together. Um, you know, when you think about the first four commandments, uh, I couldn't help but uh, when we, when, maybe when you pulled into the parking lot this morning, you noticed the, uh, the, the endless multitude of cars that are filling the street, the parking lot across the street, even part of our parking lot here. And uh, I often think, you know, when you talk to, when you talk to unbelievers or even some professing Christians uh, about God's law, uh, they will say, oh, you know, I'm basically a good person, but they seem to have a blatant disregard for the first table, as we call it, of God's law. The first four are about our relationship to God, right? No other gods, no idols, don't take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, and I think it's helpful for us to be reminded that God's moral law, that's what this is. Remember the, the Apostles' Creed is a summary of, of, of what we believe as Christians? Well, the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral will, his revealed will as to, as to morals and ethics uh, for his people and for all people that he's ever made. And so it, it really is unthinkable to say that for someone to say, oh, I'm a good moral person, they really haven't kept the second table either. But when they have a blatant disregard for the first four, the first four commandments, uh, such a person should never kid themselves that they're a good moral person. It is a violation of God's law, a transgression of his law to have another God before him. And, and that means what? To hedge your bets, to have other gods in addition to God. God sees all. It's a violation of God's moral will to break the Sabbath. And we often don't think of that as well. That also goes through, holds true for the second commandment. So I'd like to look at a few things from our text this morning. And the first of those is, and I think this is something we need to be convinced of, is that the second commandment, all of God's law, but the second commandment is as relevant today as it has ever been. It's as relevant and as important today as it's ever been. Uh, that is to say, we ourselves are faced with an ever-present, ongoing danger of the sin of idolatry. There is an ever-present temptation to break the second commandment, to commit the sin of idolatry. And so to say that is the sin of idolatry, I don't know if you've ever thought this. I know I have in my, my not-so-smart moments, which are many. Uh, sometimes we can think, well, the sin of idolatry is some long long past ancient sin that, you know, people bowing down to statues, nobody does that today. Um, this is an old sin that nobody even has to think about or give a second thought about. 
But I would say again, it's, it's, it's as prevalent in this world around us, it's as prevalent in our own hearts as it has ever been. You and I may not be making statues and bowing down to them. I hope you're not, right, if you're a professing Christian. But, but we are as tempted to idolatry as anyone that's ever walked this earth has been. You know, when you read the story of the Exodus and the golden calf, you ever read that story and you think, what on earth? Like, what were they thinking? Didn't he just say, you know, a, a couple chapters or so ago, did, did you skip that part? Did you forget that already? And remember, remember we read the first couple of verses. Who's the one that thundered these words from Sinai? Who's the one who was doing the speaking? It would have been bad enough if Moses had, been done, had done the speaking. If Moses had said, okay, guys, time out. God told me this. Here's what he said. That's what a prophet does. What does verse 1 say? And God spoke all these words saying, imagine your knees would be knocking together to hear the voice of God uh, from Sinai when he gave the law. When you think about the chastisements that the people of Israel and others had put, put upon them for this sin, some of the worst chastisements, even in, in some ways, the, the Babylonian captivity was, a, was an issue of idolatry. I, idolatry is a thread that runs through all the sufferings and miseries in many ways uh, in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament. But this same sin is mentioned and warned against repeatedly in the New Testament as well. It's not just an Old Testament, an Old Testament uh, commandment and sin. For example, the very closing words of the book of 1 John, John's first epistle, the last verse, the closing words of that epistle are this. It's on the front of your bulletin, actually. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, 1 John 5:21. After all the things John says in that epistle about assurance and all these things, he ends by saying, in a loving way, right, little children, Keep yourselves from idols. The Greek word that John uses there for keep has the idea of being on guard against something. You know, picture it as a sentry manning his, his post. You could say that John is telling us not to let our guard down. You know, of all the sins that he could say that about, we probably, if we think about it for more than a minute, would probably say to ourselves, if we're honest, why do I have to guard myself against idolatry? I'm not, I'm not tempted by that sinner. That's what we tell ourselves. But John knew otherwise, didn't he? He said, guard yourself. Keep yourselves from, from idols. The temptations to idolatry abound. 1 Corinthians 10:14, Paul says something similar. He says, therefore, my beloved, also saying it in a very kind you know, way, therefore, my beloved, flee. Flee from idolatry. Paul spends more than an entire chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians dealing with the sin of idolatry and the temptations to it. Now think about that, flee from idolatry. I don't know about you, but um, I don't think most of us normally flee from, I mean, run away from something. You know, don't walk, like, like they say, don't walk, run, right? We usually flee from things that are a danger to us. And we usually don't flee or run away from things that we don't perceive as posing a risk or a danger to us. How dangerous must idolatry be that John tells us in 1 John to be on guard against it and Paul says to run from it. Don't, don't drag your feet. Don't be like you know Lot's wife dragging your feet looking back. Run. Just run for the hills. Stay away from it as much as you can. You know The scripture tells us also to flee from, from other things such as sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says to flee from that. 
And what does he mean by that? Among other things, he means to steer clear of it entirely. Don't, don't try to skirt the line. You know, we often, in our worst moments, we, we try to define things in such a way as, how far can I go without crossing a line? And Paul says, when it, and Peter says, and John says, when it comes to idolatry, don't even get near the line. Flee from it. Guard yourselves from it. We should not try to skirt as close to the line as we can. You know what the old saying is, if you play with fire, what happens? You get burned. It's a, it's a warning that we should heed. Thomas Watson puts it this way. He says, take heed to the idolatry of image worship. Our nature is as prone to this sin as dry wood is to take fire. Like, it doesn't take much. It only takes a spark. And take it a different way, right? It only takes a spark to get a fire going. We sing that in a different way, a different meaning. But in that case, it also applies here. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote this. He said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. A factory of idols. In other words, I know this was before the conveyor belt and all that. But, but Calvin, picture it like this. There's a factory, you know, the Ford Motor Company. And they crank out a car, unless Jim orders one, they crank out a car <laughs> fairly, you know, quickly, right? How long did it take your car to get here? Two and a half years or whatever it was? Yeah. The model T was about every 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, we're not going to be sponsored by Ford now, I don't think. But, but um, picture idolatry just cranking out. On a conveyor belt. Like that's what, that's what Calvin says our hearts, our hearts are like. Our very natures. We are that prone to this sin. To worshiping God in a false manner. To putting things in the place of God. Whether they be physical images or, or just in, in our hearts and minds. Well, it probably helps to look at at least a few ways. What are the various forms of idolatry? What are the ways that we can transgress this commandment? Uh, look again at verses 4 to 5 of Exodus 20. Uh, God says, You shall not make for yourself what a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So the first way of violating this commandment is that of making and keeping and bowing down to actual images, whether they be carved like a statue or any, what does it say? Or any other likeness. So it doesn't have to be a statue. It can be any other kind of likeness made. And notice the, the categories that, that God gives us here. He includes literally everything in creation. Every visible, physical, tangible thing that you could see and make an image of. Um, it tells you, among other things, those all those kinds of things have been things that people have made idols of and used in in worship they aren't always images of people sometimes they are images of golden calf or other kinds of of animals um, so when he says anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or the water under the earth he's really leaving us no wiggle room he's saying nothing in creation should be used in any way uh, as an image in in worship not to represent false gods and not even to represent the one true and living God. Remember in the Exodus when they made the golden calf, it was kind of a, a, a conflation of, of terms, right? Uh, what did Aaron say? Here are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He's saying this represents God. But in some ways it also represented something 
something else. And so it was a violation, one that, that angered the Lord, frankly, and brought chastisement for it. Now, that's the most crude outward form of idolatry, and that is also explicitly forbidden. But that certainly includes the inward forms of idolatry as well, the things that are not visible to the naked eye and don't necessarily involve images. But why does God's command say it the way it does? You know, it's very easy for us at times to, to look at the wording of the commandments and, and try to make it very overly specific. It only includes actual images and carved things uh, in worship. Um, think about the other commandments, for example. Think about the one against false witness, right? The ninth commandment. Uh, it doesn't say, and we'll get to this, Lord willing, in some future Sunday. It doesn't just say don't lie, does it? Now, what's the heart of that commandment? Speaking the truth. You know, being someone who is characterized by truth in what we say, speaking the truth in love, as the scripture says. But why does it put it the way it does? Why does it say you shall not bear false witness? What, what the commandment does there, what God is giving us there, is in a sense the most extreme form of dishonesty, the one that has the biggest consequences. All bad speaking, all evil speaking, distruth has consequences. But if you're in a court of law and you bear false witness, someone could die. It's, he puts it in its most outwardly offensive form to show the true nature of the sin. The, the, uh, the commandment against adultery. It doesn't just say, and it could say this, and other passages do say this. God could have just said, thou shalt not commit sexual immorality. And we all would have got the point. Why does God put it the way he does in, in frame it in terms of adultery? Because it's in, in some ways, uh, there are other sins that are involved in, in, in that commandment, but in some ways it's the, it's the one that's the worst because it shows it's a breaking of the marriage covenant. It's not just a physical act, as, as that can be sinful as well, but it is a violation of, of a marriage covenant uh, before God between a husband and wife. In the same way, the second commandment frames it in terms of its most grotesque outward violation. The one that, you know, if you're on vacation somewhere and, and you're in a place that's dominated by pagan religion and you were to see people bowing down to a statue, I hope that you'd be horrified. I hope that you wouldn't just be, well, that's interesting. Let's, uh, let's get out my camera phone and, and take some pictures and I'll post that. Like, that's really something else. No, you should be horrified by it. But that's why it's written the way the way that it is, to show the heinousness of this sin and all other forms of idolatry as well. This is what so often characterizes the worship of, you know, we don't use this word these days, but maybe we should. Uh, the word heathen. If you don't have a King James, you probably never read that word. But what is a heathen? It's a pagan, someone who worships false gods and idols. They are most often characterized and always have been by the worship and the use of images in Worship. The prophet Jeremiah not only calls the people of Judah to repent of idolatry in many ways, but he also does so by mocking the futility of idols. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, this is what he says. He says, for the customs, you know, the things they do, the customs of the peoples are vanity. And then he tells you what those customs are. He says, a tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of of a craftsman, they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Now, they don't want this idol walking away, right? They're going to fix it in place. Their idols 
are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. And then he says, do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. It's idiotic. Idolatry is is not only wicked and vile, it's stupid. You could say literally, because the idol can't talk. The idol can't do anything. In fact, the person making it, imagine making something and then bowing down to it. That's all that idolatry and false religion really, really is. And then later on in verse 10, the prophet goes on to speak of God himself and says this. After all that, he says, but the Lord Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. God isn't like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, is he? People transgress his law with impunity, but he will judge both in this life and in the life to come. God is not, does not need to be carried around. God himself can speak and he can do evil, in other words, do harm uh, and do good as well. Secondly, another form of idolatry, there are inward forms of idolatry. They may not involve images outwardly at all. Colossians 3.5, Paul says this, Put to death, or mortify, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and then he adds this, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. Oh, anybody covet? Anybody in our land covet? Uh, Guess what? We're all a bunch of idolaters. Most people we know have violated that particular manner of idolatry. So money, the inordinate desire for possessions, often takes the place of God in our affections, in our priorities, and we, in a sense, make it, we don't think of it in these terms, but we make it a false god of sorts. We may not bow down to our 401k, literally, right? We don't, we don't go to the bank and, you know, genuflect and bow in front of our... Uh, you know, account or deposit box or whatever the case, but um, but we can bow down inwardly and serve those things every bit as much as the most brazen heathen bows down to a statue of his own making. It's the same sin, Paul says. It doesn't look like the same sin, but inwardly it's exactly what it is. Either way, whether it is refined and respectable according to our society or not, it is idolatry just the same, and it is... It is heinous in God's sight. Last but not least, and there may be other, other forms of idolatry as well, we can commit idolatry even in the worship of the one true and living God. And how is that? By worshiping him in a way that is not in accordance with his command in Scripture. This is almost certainly the most common form of idolatry found among professing evangelical churches today. I almost want to say the majority in our day. It seems like it's getting worse and worse. The Shorter Catechism, question 51, puts it this way. It says, what is forbidden in the second commandment? And it it says it very briefly. The second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images, and here it is, or any other way not appointed in his word. 
That's idolatry. To do whatever we think we want to do in worship is idolatry in God's sight, if it's not according to his word. This is what the old Puritan writers called will worship. It doesn't mean that we worship will. Uh, what, it, what, it mean, what it means is we worship what we want, right? Our own wills are the determining factor in what we do. We prefer X, Y, or Z, and so that's what we decide to do in worship. That's will worship. It's self-worship at the end of the day. It refers to doing what pleases us or seems right in our own eyes rather than doing what God himself is pleased by and has told us so many things in his word. I think very often what we do, and these are questions we, we kind of ask in the back of our heads. Nobody really says these things. Well, not nobody, but most of us never articulate these things out loud. But very often what happens is we start off simply by asking the wrong questions when it comes to worship. We often approach worship of all things by asking essentially what we ourselves prefer or what we ourselves like rather than what pleases God. Or, if we're more evangelistically minded, sometimes we might ask what our unbelieving friends and neighbors might prefer or enjoy rather than what pleases God. I think that's probably the case in most of the uh, evangelical um, transgressions of this kind. We think, well, how do we get people in the door? Well, we've got to jazz things up. You know, we've got to change things up to make it more appealing to them. And usually what does it end up looking like? entertainment rather than treating God as, as holy. And we try to justify such disobedience to God's word on the grounds that we're just trying to gain a hearing for the gospel. Many of the worst things that churches do are done in the name of that. They're justified on that kind of a basis wrongly. But when we do that, are we not undoing the very witness we're trying to give to our neighbors by treating God in a flippant manner. What message are we really telling them if we say that the worship of God is to be entertaining at its heart? What kind of witness are we giving our neighbors and friends and family members if we are blatantly disobeying God's word in this regard? And remember what God says in the wording of the commandment. He talks about it being those who hate him. It is an expression of hatred to God, whatever we may think differently. It's an expression of hatred and, and disregard for God to do what we feel like doing when God has said otherwise. That's not much of a witness to the gospel when we act like that. Really, that's no witness at all, not the right kind of, of witness. Do we not believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? That God works through the gospel to save Sinners, are we wiser than God? It's as if we say, well, I know it says this in the word, but you know, people are different now and we have to do things in a different way to get people in the door as if God never thought of these things, as if God never thought of that and we are wise. We are God's counselors somehow now in such a way. Think about the example of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. If you're familiar with that Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3, it says there, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, or incense, and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And what happened? 
The punishment fit the crime, didn't it? They offered strange fire. Well, guess what happened? And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Now, notice if you're looking at the text, which is always good to do, it repeats that phrase, before the Lord, before the Lord, before the Lord. The punishment fit the crime. It says they offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded. And fire came out from where? From before the Lord and consumed them. And they died again. How and where? Before the Lord. God struck them dead and he did it in a pretty dramatic and violent way. I mean, burned them up. It's like, oh, you want to offer strange fire? Watch this. And what did Aaron, you know, and, and Aaron said nothing. Which he is, he is our better in, in doing that, I think, in most cases. It says, then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. God explains what he did. Among those who are near me, and I think in, in this case he's talking about the, the priests and things, and the pastors, elders in our day. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified, and Aaron held his peace. Aaron knew God was right. He, I mean, God took his sons, burned them up in front of him. And Aaron knew God was right in what he did. The judge of the earth did, as always, did right. What did they do? What was their sin? Basically, they innovated. God had commanded a certain kind of incense. They said, well, let's try this. And what happened? You know, we might think, to, maybe when I read that text, maybe you've never read that before. Maybe if you've read it before, you thought to yourself, Wow, God was having a bad day. God, you know, God's very finicky. God's very, you know, well, pick, think of a different word than what I'm thinking of. You know, God, wow, he's really strict. We, we're thinking the wrong thing if that's what we think. We, we might think, what's the big deal? It's a different kind of, of incense, but that's not what God thought. These men knew better. These men were responsible to lead the people of Israel in worship. And they didn't treat God in front of the people as holy. That's what it says. It says, uh, this is what Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, right? Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be treated as holy. They didn't do that. They treated God kind of like their buddy. Oh, he'll, he'll, he'll like this. You know how God is. He'll like whatever we do. I will be sanctified, and here it is, and before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, what they did in disregarding the commandment of God, in leading the people in worship, uh, was done before all the people. They all saw what they did. They were basically, in some ways, flouting God and disregarding his holiness in front of everybody. It's what they all what might call a leading sin. An influencing sin. Well, if they can do it, why can't we do whatever we feel like doing in worship? They had done that before all the people, and Aaron knew God was right and just in what he had done. And so he amazingly held his peace. And we, if we think God did something wrong there, we should hold our peace too. God was entirely right 
to do it. We should be mindful of the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Acceptable to whom? Us or God? Acceptable worship, how? With reverence and awe or with fear and trembling. With reverence and awe, why? For our God is, not was, our God is a consuming fire. Does God change? No. In fact, what does the Bible say? Because God does not change, therefore we are not consumed. If God changes, we're all wasting our time here right now. We, we have no reason to believe a word in this book if God changes, because he might have changed his mind. God doesn't change because he's infinite in his perfections. So when you read those Old Testament narratives, we don't go, well, that was then, this is now. We go, there's a lesson there for us. We may, we may not have a physical temple. We may not be offering incense in a temple, but God still has lessons for us. And we, too, are to offer to God acceptable worship. What does that also mean? Not all worship is acceptable, especially if it's will worship. We act like we're doing God a favor, right? Well, we showed up for church. God should be happy with that, right? Good. It's good to show up for church, right? But what we do matters. And if we do whatever we think is right or whatever we like, God may not accept it, to say the least. He didn't just not accept Nadab and Abihu's worship. There were consequences and repercussions, as they say, for such things. And so I'll ask this morning, is our worship characterized by reverence and awe? Do we treat God as holy in our worship? And in doing that, do we evidence that we revere God as holy in how we conduct ourselves in worship and in life, being careful only to do what God himself has ordained in his word for our worship on the Lord's day. That's, that's the lesson, so to speak. Well, the Bible also gives us, thankfully, many reasons, many motivations for obedience to this commandment. And we'll only go through a few of them this morning. There are many more than what we could possibly have the time to go through. Even uh, the, the wording of this commandment, the Shorter Catechism points out to us that in this commandment, God gives us reasons and motivations for obeying this, this command. Um, he gives us a few reasons. It says, question 52, what are the reasons annexed or attached to? I know we don't talk like that now, but what are the reasons annexed to or connected with the second commandment? The reasons annexed to, it's in the commandment, right? Annexed to the second commandment are, one, God's sovereignty over us. What does that mean? He's the Lord. He's God and we're not. He's in charge and we're not. Second, his propriety, I can't even say the word, his propriety or ownership over us, and third, the zeal he has to his own worship. All those things are written in verses 4 through 6 of Exodus 20. The first reason that we should be careful to obey this commandment against idolatry is because God is sovereign over us. He is, he is the Lord. In other words, we should not commit idolatry because God alone is God. There's no other God but the Lord. In verse 5, he calls himself what? The Lord your God. In that he alone is worthy of worship and obedience, and we have to treat him in worship as in all things, 
as holy. Uh, Isaiah 42, 80 says, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other. I will not share my worship or my glory uh, with idols. He doesn't share his glory with things that we make out of our own imaginations. The second reason given in the, the shorter catechism in, in our text this morning is that because of God's redemption and ownership of, of us as his people, we are not to commit idolatry. In other words, because he's God, we don't commit idolatry. And because he has saved us by his son, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have even more reason than anyone else does to refrain from the sin of idolatry. It's when he says, I am the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. If he is your God, we have no business committing idolatry of any kind, even covetousness, as Paul says in the text we looked at earlier. The third thing, the third reason given here in our text, and this might be the most important in some ways, God's own zeal for his worship. God is zealous for his worship. What does that mean? It means it matters. It matters a lot. What we do in worship and how we conduct ourselves in worship on his day, uh, God notices it and God cares very much about it. He says he is a jealous God. That word can also be translated as zeal. He is a jealous God. And what does it say? He will judge the iniquity of those who commit idolatry. It's not a past tense thing. Oh, there used to be consequences. No, there, there's, there's present tense consequences. And what motive does God assign to idolatry, hatred of God. He says he is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Think about that. When we commit idolatry, even if it's well-intentioned, so to speak, which isn't it always, was Aaron's intention bad when he made the golden calf? He might have been cowardly in some ways, but even good-intentioned, God says he'll visit that iniquity on the children for generations to come. What a selfish thing we do when we do something like that and disregard our future generations in many ways. No wonder God warns of judgment against those who practice it. God sees it as hatred. It's not even neutral. We might think of it as neutral. Well, what does it matter? He sees it as hatred of him. And so let's flip that because he says this in the commandment itself. But showing, what does it say? Steadfast love to thousands. And I think that means thousands of generations. Like he's, he's showing that his blessings far outstrip the judgments. That if we were, we were to be motivated more, I think, by the promise of blessing and God's, and God's good pleasure than we are even by the punishments for violating the command. So if you love God, you will do what? Keep his commandments. If we really love God, it'll matter to us to keep God's commandments. Even this particular one as God attaches that in, in this commandment, in the wording of it. If we truly love God, we will keep his commandments, especially the, one, the ones regarding his worship. You know, we are not left to our own imaginations or preferences to figure out what to do and how to do it in worship. The second commandment shows us that God is zealous or jealous that he alone be worshipped and that he alone be worshipped according to what he has revealed in the scriptures alone. He has told us what things belong in worship in his word. 
And we too, if we believe in Christ, should be very zealous for the worship of God. You know, what does it say in, in, in the Gospels about Jesus when he flipped over the tables in the temple, the money changers? There's an Old Testament passage. It was a, it was a fulfillment of it. says, and it was written of him, zeal for your house consumed me. Jesus was zealous for the worship of, of his father as well. Another reason for obeying this commandment is that all idols are inherently and necessarily deceitful. Idols teach lies about God. Thomas Watson again says this, to make a true image of God is impossible. It's impossible. Habakkuk 2.18 speaks of an idol and says it is a teacher of lies. There's no such thing as an image, whether it be carved or otherwise, that is truthful about God, that does not, does not contain within it many things that are deceptive and harmful. Jesus tells us in John 4.24, God is what? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship how? In spirit and in truth. In other words, God is not a physical being. You cannot see God with your eyes in, in this life. He is infinite in all that he is. He is omnipresent and fully present everywhere. He is infinitely holy and majestic. What image can ever hope to convey even the smallest portion of that? They can't. God even tells them in the Old Testament, you didn't see an image when you heard my voice from the mountain. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but it's what he says. You didn't see something. You heard something. So we don't use images in worship even in our minds when it comes to God because they're deceitful they teach us wrong things about God which means worship that involves those things inherently teaches lies about God the glory of God is of an altogether different kind than the things that he has created that's why Romans 1 verses 21 to 23 says this Paul says for although they knew God in other words, they knew there's one true and living God they knew who it was Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But what happened? They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. What happened? They became fools. And here it is. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There is not a single thing on this earth that you can make an image of and to, to represent God of which it would not be a grave insult to God's majesty to do it. They are created things and he is the creator who is blessed forever and those two things are never the same. Idolatry is dishonoring to God. It is the product of a darkened heart, not an enlightened one. It is exchanging the glory that belongs to God alone for images resembling created things. It's an insult to God. And so if we love God, we should show that love in how we live and in how we, especially in how we worship. Well, in closing, with having said all that, and I feel like we just scratched the surface of it. There's so much more we could say and maybe should have said. Uh, but praise be to God, the one true and living God, not the one of our imagination, not the, one, the ones of the heathen that they make and carry around that God saves and sanctifies even those who are guilty of idolatry. All kinds of idolatry. Even the one that you think of 
in the most crass form of the outward worship of images. Think about what Paul told the Christians in the city of Thessalonica. First, uh, he says this, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and here it is, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, when you, when you read Paul's journeys, ministering the gospel to, to Gentiles mainly, he, he went and preached to the synagogues first, and when they, when, they, when they rejected Christ, he went to the Gentiles everywhere he went. Paul was in a, everywhere he went, it was pagan territory. It was the territory of idols and false religion. You know, some of the things that happened, many of the, the, the sufferings that Paul endured were the result of him taking the gospel into hostile, hostile territory where idols were prevalent, where idols were the only thing people worshipped. Remember, great is Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians, and Paul goes in and a riot breaks out. We're reading Second Timothy right now uh, on the other Sundays of the month in the sermons, and we're going to get to chapter 4 soon, and there he tells Timothy, beware of Alexander the coppersmith, for he's done us great harm. Why do you think he did him great harm? The gospel's bad for business when your business is making idols. And the, the grace of God transformed pagans everywhere that Paul went. People took their idols and threw them out and no longer worshiped those things and turned to the one true and living God. God saves even those who have served idols in this life. God in his amazing grace and mercy in Jesus Christ takes idolaters of all kinds and grants them repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So what happens? They turn away from dead idols, worthless idols, to serve the living and true God. And when that happens, what happened in Thessalonica? Word got out pretty quick, didn't it? That's the kind of testimony and witness that spreads like wildfire. People say, whoa, 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 what happened in Thessalonica? People are throwing away their idols and worshiping the one true and living God. That's the kind of life-changing faith in God that God uses as a witness. And that goes everywhere. As Paul says, we didn't even need to say anything. The word of their conversion traveled ahead of Paul before the Internet, before phones and all these things. May God be pleased to use us to bear witness of the gospel of the Son, even in the way that we worship on the Lord's Day, so that others might turn from worthless idols to serve the one true and living God by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.